0: Hello and welcome to episode 306 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the fast attack submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore of Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other postings. How are you this morning, Bill?
1: I'm doing
0: great, Seth. How are you? I'm recovering after a really, really nasty bout of COVID and strep throat on top of it. So oh, yeah, no. that was nice. It's fun. Yeah, <laughs> lots of fun. But uh, this week, we'd like to welcome back our new guest, but he's a returning guest for this season. Uh, he is the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at Missouri University of Science and Technology. Author of 15 books, and I'm sure many more in the future. His trilogy about the United States Army operations in the Pacific during World War II have become go-to references on the subject, and we are always excited to have him back here with us. Please join us in welcoming back John McManus. John, how are you this morning?
2: Doing great. Great to be with you guys. I, I'm glad you're feeling
0: better, Seth. That's really a bummer to have yeah, it sucked. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. yeah, it's the second, it's, just, it's the second time having the itis, but uh, we'll, we'll be all right. We'll be good. Mm. Good thing we're doing this remotely, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> then <That> it's safe. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh, Well, before we get started, we want to ask you to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel as it helps other people find our show. We want to get the history to the masses. And if you want to help us do that, please like and subscribe to the episode to the show and click the like button on the episodes. So we'll get on with the show this morning. Uh, The term military intelligence is more often than not an oxymoron. Sometimes so-called intel is accurate and sometimes it is not. Sometimes it is valuable, other times it is not. When it is accurate, military intelligence can tip the scales in a battle or campaign often drastically. Deciphered messages and accurate analysis gave the US Navy cryptanalysts at Station Hypo and Station Mel the opportunity to provide Admiral Nimitz with accurate intelligence that directly led to the United States Navy's success at Midway. Accurate intel analysis led to the shootdown and killing of Japanese Admiral Yamamoto. Inaccurate intelligence analysis nearly led to a planning and operational disaster at Los Negros in February 1944. So it can go either way. And frankly, more often than not, it can be based on chance. Uh, a chance decrypt a shrewd observation or a random discovery, as was the case in January 1944. Uh, part of the problem is that there were so many intercepted messages and lack of decryption capacity, it wasn't clear which one should be decrypted first. Uh, there was a certain randomness to this, and that sometimes failed us. Uh, For example, if you decrypted message A, which laid an enemy course of action, but then missed message B that changed the course of action, you would be absolutely led down the wrong path. Uh, A chance discovery by an infantryman in the Australian 9th Infantry Division directly led to a massive breakthrough for MacArthur's Southwest Pacific Command and allowed him to plan and execute two invasions that likely saved thousands of American lives and sped up the timetable of the war for General Mack that was inexorably marching back towards his ultimate goal of recapturing his beloved Philippines. Now, when I say intel breakthrough, I am not lying here, am I, John? This was a huge discovery by these Aussies in in the jungle, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would argue this is one of the greatest intel discoveries in modern military history, and it's just... You know, like a lot of Intel discoveries like this, there's a, there's some element of luck involved, but also um, malfeasance and incompetence and, and um, you know just plain old human foibles. Uh, what happens here is that you know the the Japanese are retreating westward along the New Guinea coast. The Allies have been kind of pressuring them throughout much of late 1943 and early 1944. And as they're retreating westward, of course, they they can't take everything with them. Uh, And so they are uh, destroying, uh, you know, much of their their kit, uh, just taking kind of what they can carry. And one of the things that they're destroying is their code books. Um, so the, uh, you would think, okay, well then I guess you burn them. Well, ordinarily you would, but the mm-hmm. climate is such, it's so damp, it's so rainy. Um, it's so soggy, so moldy that this becomes near to impossible. And so there's a Japanese signals officer, whose name is lost to history, fortunately for him, um, mm-hmm. the, who, who decides, you know, I'm going to get rid of all this stuff by, by putting it in a kind of a steamer trunk <laughs> into a steel trunk and, that's bad enough. You know, basically they sink it into, into a swamp, figuring the Allies will never find this or even know what it is. But the the other thing that he does he tears off the, the covers of the code book and he sends them in to, to higher command and attest to the destruction of the the code books and when in fact this has not been done. Uh, so, it's the worst of both worlds that he's left um, that material out in such a place that it could possibly be recovered by the enemy, and he's made his superiors think that it's been destroyed, that there's no chance that the, the code books have been lost. So, like you said, Seth, uh, troops from the Australian 9th Division find the trunk, and amazingly enough, look at it and figure out this is important, and then they get it farther on up the line where it can really do some good. So that's the other part of intelligence. It has to actually do some good farther up the line by people who know what to do with it.
0: Right. And the fact that it was actually even discovered at all <laughs> is is like one of those things where I said things are you know a lot, a lot of times left to chance. This is one of those things. I mean, the fact that this cat actually found this in the hole, in the mud hole, and was able to get it out and then actually it has something worthwhile is is just miraculous in and of itself um so to lay it out there what we're talking about specifically here is the, the the contents of this box carried most not all but a great majority of the japanese imperial japanese Army's codes right john i mean these were right these were something that that MAX people and the Navy had kind of not really been able to get into, uh, you know, they were reading JN-25, they're reading the Navy uh, pretty much, you know, when they wanted to, essentially, but the Army's codes were, were lacking, and this uh, helped MacArthur significantly because of the fact that he was able to actually get, once they broke these codes, which didn't take long because they had the damn code books, uh, to read their mail, to read accurate intelligence, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely, in almost real time. I mean, it, mm-hmm. what the, the biggest value of it is that you're able to figure out their order of battle and their troop dispositions, and that's the, the you know what really makes a major difference. Well, now when it gets um, when the, when these codebooks get get pressed up up the line, um, the other element of this is really quite remarkable and, and kind of uh, innovative, is that uh, MacArthur's headquarters, uh, of course, is recognizing them for what they are but also now has the technology to recover them because, you know, the, the, the books are not in good condition. They're, they're muddy, they're wet, you know, everything that the Japanese thought they might be. Well, they're using early microwave technology to, to, to bake these things, to dry them out without burning them up or whatever, and, and you know, recovering them well enough that you can basically piece it together and, and read what happened. So I think it's emblematic of the fact that SWAPA, Southwest Pacific Area, Um, Its Intel section has become quite sophisticated by now. It has a lot of different Mm -hmm. components and elements to it. And I think this is one example. So um, as it gets farther on up the line, now once um, you get to the kind of staff level, you can begin to form a a pretty good idea of where the Japanese strengths are on, on New Guinea and where they're not. And uh, when you're thinking about future invasions, obviously, that's really good information to have. So one of of the things I say in in my book um, is that whoever this Japanese officer was, uh, he does much more damage to his cause than the famous Benedict Arnold ever did to the American cause uh, 200-some-odd years earlier. This guy absolutely consigns his comrades to uh, (laughs) a horrifying future on a a lot of levels. Hey, John. Yeah, I mean, he— Get to ahead, Bill.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, MacArthur must have been driven crazy by the fact that the naval codes had been broken and and to some extent we were able to read Navy messages, although we were overwhelmed and only ended up reading a fraction of naval messages. And now he's got a similar advantage. Was he able to read a higher portion or proportion of Army messages than the Navy guys were able to read naval messages?
2: I mean, I think actually, Bill, he's able to to have better more actionable kind of intelligence than the famous navy you know um intel that, that leads to coral sea and midway because that takes a lot of extrapolating a lot of sort of mm-hmm. uh you know gaming it and figuring out you know maybe they mean midway let's let's put this little bait out there or whatever macarthur right. doesn't have to do that because the japanese have no idea that this has been lost and this is the kind of material that's that's you know betraying exactly how they're communicating with one another and also, you know, like I said, their order of battle. So in a way, I think it's easier intel to, to exploit. But like any good intel, it's perishable. Uh, so really, it needs to be to be exploited within the next few months. And I th- I think that the Imperial Japanese Army would regularly change some of its coding and, and whatnot too. So you were gonna you're gonna have that problem. Um, but uh, yeah, it's ironic because um, <laughs> I'm sure MacArthur was frustrated at times that the, the Navy had better intel than he did. Uh, for some of the, the fleet engagements we're going to have. Um, but now that changes in early 1944, and it dramatically impacts, of course, his operations that year.
0: So, so Bill, the the Japanese expected the Allies, you know, as we're working our way up New Guinea, and, I mean, it, you know, they know that we're coming. Uh, they expected us to land at a place called Hansa Hansa Bay. Um, and because of that, they set up their defenses to... to Repel that invasion that they thought was coming, but because of this intel breakthrough, things kind of shaped up differently. But tell us about what what goes on with uh, with the Japanese defenses at Hansa Bay, and what leads us to landing where we do land, which is Hollandia and atape here in the in the near future.
1: Seth, the short answer here: again, we're going to look at Papua New Guinea. Bring up the map, make our you were happy, again. but but the short answer here is the Japanese concentration forces were down along this area. I think if I got that right, John, um, of PNG peninsula, uh, northern part of the island, and of course you got famous Wewak Harbor, which is right here. You will remember from the third patrol of the Wahoo and Mush Morton penetrating that. There's there's a pretty good concentration. That's a great anchorage. And then the other great anchorage is up here in the area of what we're referring to today as Hollandia and ITAPE in here. So, so the Japanese believed that the invasion would come down here and they really built up defenses. In fact, I think they had, correct me if I'm wrong here, something like two divisions down there. And because of this intel, you know, MacArthur was able to say, all right, if they're here, We're going to do something different and land where they ain't. He's he was famous for saying that and then not doing it. But this is one occasion where, in fact,
0: he does it, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He does. Hansa Bay was initially a target for MacArthur. That's actually where he did plan to land at one point. But to your point, Bill, once he got and John, once he got this intelligence that the Japanese had, you know, two divisions plus. Uh, of people there. He was like, nah, we're 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 not going there. If I know that there's this many people waiting for me there under a general, 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 named Adachi, he's uh he's like, no, no, we're not going to go there. We're going to go exactly, we're going to hit them where they ain't, and we're going to land at a place that can serve a similar purpose in Hollandia with the, with the anchorage that it will serve here in the future, and A-Tape, and we're going to basically cut these Japanese off. And that's essentially what he does. He wants to bypass Hansa Bay, jump over this area, land in Hollandia and A-Tape, and just let these guys wither on the vine john this is no different than bypassing kolombangara in the solomons and that you know or other places uh truck for instance or or even rebald that we're just jumping over these people we're going to let them wither on the vine and to your point what you were saying about you know the japanese intel officer that (laughs) can you know consigns these guys to a horrible fate these are fifty thousand plus people that are now cut off that are going to wither in the New New England, Jesus, in the New Guinea jungles (laughs) and either fight or die, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of elements to this. Um, One of the reasons Hansa Bay is so attractive is that the the North New Guinea coast um, is hard to traverse. There's a lot of coral outcroppings, Mm -hmm. a lot of coral ridges and whatnot that make it very difficult for landings. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the, the Japanese understand that Hansa Bay is probably the most desirable you know, feasible area. And of course, not just a matter of landing, but where you can develop a naval base and where you can develop any semblance mm-hmm. of of uh, depots and logistical bases is really the key to this whole thing. So um, that's why, you know, and so, you know, it's, you've got to go farther west to ATAPE and to Hollandia to really have anything even remotely like that. So, yes, MacArthur had totally intended to, to get after Hansa Bay uh, for these obvious reasons. I also think it's sort of analogous to uh, to what's going on almost at the same time in uh, in Europe in that Calais is so heavily defended because it's the most desirable place to land. Uh, and Normandy is an alternate on some levels, of course, also heavily defended too, whereas, of course, Holanda and Atape are not. But um, So you have that component to it as well. The other thing that happens is that For this to even get in front of MacArthur and and make him aware, there also has to be some interesting dynamics in place as well. Uh, So when the intel becomes sort of common knowledge among the staff, even then there is not unanimity that uh, they need to to kind of leapfrog around Hansa Bay and go to Hollandia and whatnot. Um, It's through... uh, you know, there's a lot of people who want to take credit for it because it ends up so well, but, um, <laughs> uh, Lieutenant General George Kenny, who's MacArthur's remarkable air commander is a player in this as is Bonner fellers. Who's this interesting court of, sort of, uh, shadowy kind of, uh, court MacArthur court character, uh, on some levels, mm-hmm. he's, uh, he's an Intel guy. He's the military secretary for MacArthur. um, uh, but but in any psyops too. So in, in this case, he's had to kind of push hard to put this in front of MacArthur because MacArthur's uh, G three, his operations officer, Steve Chamberlain, who's who's a pretty competent guy, uh, was not really sold on the concept. And so and he basically, according to to what you know, he will later say, and and fellers especially he basically tell Fellers, stand down. I, I don't want you telling the general about this. Uh, we're going on with the Hansa mm-hmm. Bay thing, and, and Fellers basically disobeys, and uh, it comes to MacArthur's attention, and MacArthur gets really on board with the concept, and so uh, Fellers gets fired from his, his job that he had, but MacArthur hangs on to him as his military secretary and psyops guy. So there's even, you know, we talk about good, actionable intelligence, uh, but also kind of luck and dynamics and weird. I mean, it would have been very possible that this could have never been used and uh, they would have still gone for hansa bay if you wouldn't have this kind of dynamic happening of the, these folks who are working for macarthur
0: right yeah it's definitely a case of somebody you know like you said disobeying orders but looking at the intelligence and realizing that this is important that i don't care really what you say here this is likely going to save lives and still get the same mission accomplished in the end um so the targets for the invasions plural will be Hollandia and Atape as we as we said uh, just a minute ago. They're situated on the northern coast of New Guinea and it is the only large scale and anch- well one of the only large scale anchorages um east of wewak it's located on humboldt bay Uh, the anchorage that hollandia will provide was first rate and would prove to be a valuable anchorage, second only really to majoro and later ulithi for the fast carriers as they pounded westward uh, throughout the rest of the year Um, in addition to to the plan to invade hollandia a plan was also drawn up to simultaneously invade a tape uh, it's included in macarthur's schedules of events located roughly 125 miles southeast of hollandia and therefore closer to adachi's forces at wewak a tape was seen as a necessary location to brace to basically block any japanese attempt to come from wewak to hit hollandia also they had an airfield there uh, taji i believe it was called john mm-hmm. um that the allies figured that they could use to also Deflect any kind of Japanese air presence that would come through here now You mentioned uh, some dynamics that go into play here and bill bill and I have talked about Nimitz and MacArthur's relationship Here and there, but we've never really gone into a whole heck of a lot of detail but in order to accomplish this mission Mac is going to need the help of the Navy and not just the help of the Navy that he has been using as he's been going up through New Guinea, but the big blue fleet, uh, Chester Nimitz's fast carriers and task force 58 under Mark Mitcher. He and Nimitz, Mac- MacArthur and Nimitz, um, finally get to having a meeting and Nimitz actually comes down to see Mac and they hang out for a couple of days. And in the end, they bring, they, you know, they come out with a fairly decent relationship and they, they come together with a plan for this operation. Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, shindig <laughs> that they had yeah so, so for almost a year uh, macarthur
2: had sort of viewed nimitz as this adversary you know because uh macarthur figured um you know that the navy was always plotting against him in washington dc circles and whatnot and that they would get resources that uh, rightfully belonged to him and all this and i think macarthur had a a really very narrow view uh on, on some levels and and you know was was not quite understanding just how well he and Nimitz could work together. And I, I think Nimitz, for his part, I, I've always felt that his forbearance is incredible. Um, the, you know, the, his patience level with what is often just complete immaturity on, on MacArthur's part at times. Uh, and so when he gets the invitation for MacArthur to, to come, uh, you know, to Australia and, and start to figure out their, their sort of joint plans for 1944, he, he leaps at it. Uh, it's also very MacArthur-esque, too, that he he uh, has the other guy travel to him rather than MacArthur traveling mm-hmm. to the other guy. Um, yep. But be that as a main, Nimitz doesn't worry about that, and he quite rightly goes to, to Australia. And they, they do have a meeting of the minds, except there's one moment that's really awkward. Uh, at a in, in one kind of meeting or planning session, Nimitz makes the, the sort of mistake of saying something in the order of, "Well, if you know, if we do go to the Philippines, if that makes sense, or something, you know." And, and MacArthur immediately sees on that, you know, like, "Oh, we must and we will, and it's our mission, and it's our, you know." So he's treated to this whole screed, and he's like, "Yeah, okay, I was just sort of." talking notionally, you know? Um, so <laughs> bottom line, Nimitz uh, promises the use of, as you said, um, Mitcher's fast carriers to, to support the Hollandia ops. So, and so why is this really significant? Well, um, one of the reasons why Hollandia was going to be a pretty big gamble and why Chamberlain didn't like it is because the, the Japanese had a lot of land-based air um, at Hollandia. They had over 100 planes uh, and that, that's a pretty potent force that could threaten those ships, of course, uh, not just the fast carriers, but the landing ships and whatnot, uh, but the troops once they're ashore. Um, so Kenny basically has to reassure Nimitz that these guys are not going to be a problem, that he's going to take care of them, um, you know, so that the carriers will not be in danger. And the way he's going to do this is an incredible bait and switch. I think this is maybe Kenny's finest moment of World War II. Um, he understood that the Japanese believed his P-38s um, did not have enough range to escort uh, his bombers to the Hollandia area. And thus, the bombers would be quite vulnerable, and thus the Japanese could, could um, you know, perhaps control some semblance of the air. What he's really done, he's welcomed about 50 to 60 brand-new P-38s in theater. That have the range, and then he's re- he's refitted others with special uh, fuel and drop tanks, and he's done this all on the sly, and he's kind of had a bait and switch, and that he's forbade his crews to operate west of a certain line in, in New Guinea to continue to, to the Japanese think this. So um, eventually, he's going to uncork that fist, you know, um, you know, well before the invasion, and basically neutralize. Uh, the Japanese land-based air, it's it's a devastating strike. Well, this then will allow Mitcher's carriers to operate uh, without fear of land-based air attacks. And so MacArthur needs that air support because it's going to take a while to to develop the airfield at Taji and develop, uh, you know, obviously the fields that you're going to want at Hollandia to give you closer closer and closer range uh, fighter support and, and whatnot. So... Um, Yeah, there's really quite a spirit of partnership when they do meet uh, Nimitz Mm -hmm. and MacArthur in Australia. And I I really think, and this is just my opinion, if if we're looking not just here, but the whole war, um, MacArthur gets a lot more out of that partnership than Nimitz ever does because, uh, oh, yeah. and this is the first indicator of it, MacArthur is constantly going to let Nimitz down in terms of what he's giving in return. What he had offered in return mm-hmm. is once he can develop airfields around Hollandia, that he would have his land-based bombers, Kenny's land-based bombers, you know, support the, the fleet and subsequent operations in 1944. Not MacArthur's fault, but as it turns out, those, those fields are just not suited to those kind of bombers, and so he will provide no support there. Um, right. And so, again, I, I just think Nimitz's patience with MacArthur is legendary in in my mind um but there's a little subplot to this too that i should mention it's sort of in macarthur's defense uh, macarthur felt that he'd been let down by the navy during the 1941-42 campaign admiral thomas hart mm-hmm. uh, who controls a fleet that's really kind of overmatched on some levels with the japanese yeah. but um even then i think macarthur felt and i think with some some fairness to this—that perhaps uh, Hart's submarines might have been a bigger player in inflicting damage on the Japanese in forty-one and forty-two. Um, MacArthur had had thought, "Well, they betrayed me. They did this. The navy's no good," um, and it was a ridiculous viewpoint. But he, to his credit, he comes around on that view, uh, and especially once he has a very strong partnership with Halsey. Uh, so by nineteen forty-four. Um, you know, MacArthur, I think, understands very, very well the potency of uh, the naval forces under the command of, of certainly Halsey, but also Tommy Kincaid, and, you know, the, the possibilities that Nimitz has, um, and, I, and I think he has really sort of revised his view. Uh, so he, he demonstrated maybe some flexibility that other commanders might not have, and I think certainly it's one of the things that helps this whole operation.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And and this is going to be a huge operation, and he's going to need Chester Nimitz and Mark Mitcher's aircraft carriers. Bill, tell us about this thing. This is not, this this is, to this point, this is the largest operation that MacArthur has has unfolded, shall we say. What, there's a lot of moving pieces that are going into this thing. It's
1: huge. I mean, we got over 800 aircraft, both carrier and land-based. We've got 217 warships, including Mitcher's Task Force 58 that you mentioned, Seth, 31 LCIs, 51 LSTs, 55 destroyers and other ships, including heavy cruisers, light cruisers, and eight escort carriers. You know, so first part, Nimitz did promise the participation of the eight escort carriers that would directly support I-tape, And then once the airfield, at, in theory, once the airfield at Taji had been captured and, and could be used, then would move on to support Hollandia. But as as you said, you know, it turns out that those airfields weren't as useful to us as we think they would have been, Seth.
0: Right. Yeah. And Mac orders uh, that elements of two United States Army divisions would take part in this operation in Hollandia, Uh, the Veteran 41st Infantry Division and the 24th ID that had once been at Schofield Barracks during the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, For A-tape elements of the 41st as well as the Veteran 32nd Infantry Division uh, would hit the shores there, the 32nd would come later. Um, Combined, the manpower of the two landings exceeded 52,000 people, so this is by far uh Nimitz, this is by far MacArthur's largest operation yet in the Pacific War. Uh these ground forces fell under the command of General Walter Kruger and his Sixth Army. John, Walter Kruger is a guy we've just barely barely spoken about. What uh who is Walter Kruger? W- what is he like? What is he doing? And Walter John, is you, if you
1: talk about that, maybe you could talk about the what the relationship between the Sixth Army, how many numbered armies there were in the Pacific. And the, you know, I think his first corps, I Corps, as well, and how that all order battle all fell out.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so here's here's what happens in terms of the organizational structure um, by 1943, the early part of 1943, MacArthur's uh, SWAPA uh, was going was starting to have enough ground forces to have beyond a corps level command. Uh, so there was going to be an army level command. But in in classic sort of MacArthur way, he was deeply concerned that, um, that the, the Australian officers uh, on site, like uh, particularly General Blamey, would uh, would have seniority and would lay claim somehow to, to commanding any kind of army level force that that was stood up. Um, so in order to kind of circumvent this, uh, he he stands up an army sized. Uh, headquarters, but calls it Alamo force rather than giving it an actual numbered army. It's only going to be much later and toward the end of 1943, that will be known as sixth army. And then he brings Lieutenant General Walter Kruger to the theater who would clearly have seniority over blamey and, and so on and so forth. So Kruger is only a year younger than MacArthur. Um, and he is going to, to come to the to theater in 1943 Um, and and command this Alamo force that becomes 6th Army. So by the time of the the Hollandia uh, landings, it is openly known as 6th Army and will be for the rest of the war. Uh, But it starts its life confusingly as Alamo force. Um, Mm. uh, Why Alamo? Well, because uh, Kruger uh, and and his wife were going to make their their post-war home in San Antonio um so as a tribute to him it, it becomes known as alamo force and then of course sixth army now kruger Kruger's just this fascinating dude um he uh, he was actually born in germany uh he's one of to my knowledge only two foreign-born uh generals in the u.s army in world war ii the other being ben lear who was born in canada and i don't know if that really counts but uh, um, Kruger <laughs> was born in Germany. I think I think that definitely counts. And um, he's the son of an army officer, a German army officer. So really, in a in a different kind of universe, he could have served in World War I as a as a German army officer. Instead, his father died when he was an adolescent, and so his mother uh, moves Kruger and and uh, and herself to the United States. They immigrate to the United States. Interestingly enough. Um, they came to St. Louis, and it's interesting because that, that's where I live. Um, what is, why did they come here? Well, there was a major German-American community, still is, in, uh, in St. Louis. And um, supposedly, uh, Kruger's uncle either owned a, a brewery or, or was affiliated with one, worked at one. And that was very, very common uh, for German-Americans in St. Louis mm-hmm. in the late 19th century. So here's this adolescent. You know, transplanted to a a new country, having to learn a new language, a new culture, new schools. Um, He spoke English with hardly an accent, really no accent the rest of his life. Very proud of that. Um, He had quite a penchant for languages. Obviously, he spoke German, but also French and Spanish. He was conversant with Latin. Um, And so he's making his way in this new country. And then in 1898, uh, war with Spain breaks out. So uh, Walter is military minded. I guess he probably inherits that from his father and he decides he's going to join the army as a private. Uh, so he joins as a 17 year old private in 1898 and then about a half century later retires as a four star general. I mean, that is just mm. that's just amazing. You know, and, and the other thing, the other thing that's so incredible about it is to consider the educational level. Um, he's commissioned from the ranks. And by the way, he's commissioned from the ranks when he's serving in the Philippines uh, during the Philippine American war in the early 20th century. So, um, unlike a lot of his, you know, senior officer peers, of course he has no West point pedigree. Um, but he has no college degree and he has no high school diploma. I mean, that'll never happen again. Um, and yet he's in some ways smarter and better educated on some levels than many of them because he's an autodidact. He's, uh, Uh, You know, Once he's an officer, he's really quite an intellectual on some levels in in terms of military strategy and and, uh, the sort of wonky policy papers that he writes in the 1920s, articles he publishes and whatnot. Um, And so as Walter Kruger moves up through the ranks uh, to become like a lieutenant colonel, a colonel, a senior officer, one of the things that's quite um, emblematic about him is he always has a, a, a tremendous sympathy and rapport for the average soldier. And the reason is because he was one. you know so one. dry socks are really important to him. you know the way the soldiers are eating, really important to him. Um, in terms of his personality, now, he's an excellent husband and, and father. I mean, he, he has a very loving wife, uh, Grace. Uh, he's, he's a terrific husband. He has three kids, two sons and a daughter. Um, and he's, he's a very warm-hearted father, but in his professional life, He's he's very different than he is at home. Um, he's brusque. He's no nonsense. He's often rude. Um, he just doesn't get it in terms of how to, to kind of schmooze with people or to how to. Maybe a better way to say it is, how to um, how to make people feel comfortable uh, and wanted and needed mm-hmm. and valued. That's not his strength. Um, his strength is his honesty. His strength is his caring for soldiers. His intellectual aptitude, his military aptitude. But often he's thought of as methodical and cautious. And and there's a great deal of truth to that. But he's also sensible, you know. So where does sensible give way to overcaution, or what, and vice versa? That's what's hard to decide, right? So um, Kruger is is somebody who's been chosen personally by MacArthur uh, for this. I think. In part because of the seniority, because of his reliability, the respect he has throughout the Army, but also he doesn't care about the limelight at all. Um, Kruger's very happy to to operate (laughs) under the radar in terms of publicity, and then
0: that's MacArthur's guy. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Good thing. Yeah. So so underneath uh, Kruger is another guy that we have talked about before, who mm-hmm. is one of my favorite army commanders in the Pacific. Well, one of my favorite army commanders, period. And that's Robert that's right. Eichelberger. Eichelberger had been sidelined after Bunagona, which he kind of pulled that. Well, he didn't kind of. He pulled that operation out of the mud and and made it succeed. Yet he is sidelined. He sidelined after that. He macked. Shanghai's him from getting a command in europe and really pisses eichelberger off but you know to max credit he's hanging on to eichelberger because he knows he's going to need him in the future tell us a little bit about bob eichelberger he he was a he was a fantastic commander fantastic commander oh, too. he's an incredible commander in my opinion
2: he's probably the best um u.s ground commander that the average american has never heard of um and i don't just mean mm-hmm. world war ii I mean, maybe in all of U.S. Uh, military history, he's just outstanding on many levels. So it's interesting because I think uh, on some, in some ways, he's really similar to Kruger in that he's honest. He's a really good person on some levels. Uh, you know, his, his soulmate is his wife Emma. Um, mm-hmm. Eichelberger has a, a kind of a, a fundamental decency about him, which I think Kruger does too. Um, but they're also temperamentally quite different, and, and their backgrounds are different. So Eichelberger came from a, a really kind of well-off background in, in Ohio. He's, um, he's the son of a uh, Civil War veteran on, on the U.S. side uh, in Ohio. And um, uh, so, so Eichelberger's father was a successful lawyer and a kind of gentleman farmer who, who owned a lot of land and a beautiful house. And Eichelberger grows up under these wonderful circumstances of, of a, just an ideal kind of childhood. Um, he's the youngest of five children, but the, the, the sort of conflict in his life comes from the fact that his father, um, like a lot of sort of successful parents who have been through war, um, and now have the sort of next generation under them who have been grown up, you know, in in sort of, comfortable circumstances, Eichelberger's father had become convinced that his kids were soft and they never make it in the world. and, And that he had to really kind of test them and constantly bring adversity to them. So he runs the family like a reality show of pitting the kids in competition with one another. And uh, Leica has three older brothers and one older sister. And, you know, he's the youngest. It's tough for him to compete at that level, especially with his older brothers. So he's not taken seriously. He's beloved because he has this sort of endearing personality from the beginning. He has a a, a voracious kind of uh, reading and, and interest in the Civil War. He loved to sit there when when Eichelberger's father would uh, would uh, have his fellow veterans over and they'd discuss the war. Um, and also his mother, too. By the way, his mother had Mississippi roots and had been in Vicksburg during mm-hmm. during the siege. And so he had sort of both sides in the Civil War, similar to his boss, MacArthur. Um, so Eichelberger is a kind of child of history in some respects and beloved, but not taken very seriously. Like little Bobby, the baby, uh, yeah, pat him on the head, and you know he's not going to amount to much. So soldiering became his thing. He always had this chip on his shoulder to achieve something, to to achieve great distinction. And he finds his way at West Point, um, you know, that he could be a very fine soldier. So in terms of his background, during World War I, um, he had not gone to the Western Front. He had actually gone to Russia uh, with the polar bear expedition. To, to snuff out the Bolshevik regime. And so he sees combat there. He's an intel guy there. He's the key uh, staff officer and aide for General Graves, the, the commander of the American troops there. Uh, so Eichelberger also, interestingly, had served and embedded with a Japanese unit and uh, mm-hmm. had studied them. So really, he's quite similar to Kruger in this sort of military intellectual side that he has. Um, and he, so he's been studying the Japanese for years. And he's, you know, in terms of his operational outlook, he's aggressive. He's He loves, like, uh, maneuver warfare. He, he is very, very uh, in tune with leading from the front, the inspirational-type mm-hmm. commander. Um, very in tune with the average soldier as well on a lot of levels. Um, really quite similar to his West Point classmate, uh, George Patton. Uh, and I found that they kept in touch during the war. They wrote back and forth greatly admired each other, but, but Eichelberger lacks Patton's, oh, uh, you know, ruthlessness. Uh, Panache. <laughs> all the, you know, the, the, the sort of ugly side of, uh, of Patton, uh, the, the racism and the, you know, the, the, the sort of political incorrectness or whatever these headaches it causes Eisenhower. Um, no, Eichelberger gives you all the, the greatness uh, at the front without all that drama. Uh, so what's the problem with MacArthur? Well, Eichelberger is garrulous, and, and he he has friends everywhere, and he, he gets on well with war correspondents, so he's a challenge in terms of uh, publicity. And uh, so what happens is that, you know, Seth, you mentioned Buna. Well, Eichelberger, mm-hmm. you know, is leading from the front for a month, loses 30 pounds in 30 days. I mean, he salvages that mess into the first American ground victor in World War II. Uh, and after he gets permission from MacArthur... To, to speak to the correspondence, and he does so so well, MacArthur's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done this, and then he, he backbenches <laughs> <him. laughs> and then he threatens to bust him to colonel and send him home. Um, and I always thought, well, yeah, go ahead and do that, because you're going to see how quickly Eisenhower is going to scoop him up for the Normandy invasion, uh, because Eisenhower, I found in my research, Eisenhower did want him uh, for probably a core-level command, possibly even army-level. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. so... You know, MacArthur realizes, hmm, I can't do that. So let me just hang on to this guy and we'll have him train people in Australia for almost a year. And then now, once he needs him, he's front and center as I Corps commander in Hollandia. And that's going to be control of those two divisions that go ashore.
1: Remind yeah. me, is this and, the same and- go to, go to Boonagona and don't come
2: back alive? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Take Boon and Bob and don't come back alive. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> if your boss told you that, uh, you know, <laughs> go on this patrol, Bill, or don't come back alive. You know, I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> unreal. And so. Uh, I mean, yeah. When Eichelberger goes into Buna, um, he's he's been told by MacArthur that time is of the essence, that he's got to make this happen so quickly, and uh, you know, he eventually wins the victory. And then once he's out of there, he's amazed to hear uh, uh, MacArthur tell the the press, uh, time wasn't really important; it was just a matter of wearing them down and all this kind of stuff. And so, <laughs> yeah, as Seth mentioned earlier, Eichelberger would really become quite resentful of MacArthur. You know, I think understandably so. But he but he really. Suppresses that during the war because he knows he's (laughs) got to get along and that's his boss. And they actually work
1: together. Yeah. Yeah. And we got to move on. But I mean, as was Eisenhower, Nimitz, and pretty much anybody who dealt with him. So I had to
0: say that.
2: Exactly.
0: So, so yeah. the forces under Eichelberger uh, would land at Hollandia in two locations. Elements of the 24th Infantry would land at Tanamara Bay and the 41st would land at Humboldt Bay and link up in the area before Lake Centani, thus providing an encircled and contiguous beachhead, at least somewhat. Um, the complex plans, and they were complex, uh, and simultaneous landings, three, actually, if you add A-tape, would stretch the abilities and resources of MacArthur's forces. Bill... Deception played a role in this operation as well. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And, and to John's point, when 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 Kenny unleashes these thirty eights, they go down there and they just absolutely lay waste to the Japanese air forces. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes, Seth. Uh, um, you know what was happening here was you know, General Kennedy used a really great bait and switch tactic on kind of misleading the enemy as it pertained to what the future objectives would be. So P-24s, P-38s, and other strike aircraft hit Japanese airfields, decimating anything that might have gotten airborne during the upcoming landings. So over 340 Japanese aircraft were destroyed, with the majority of those being destroyed on the ground, while poultry 4 allied aircraft were lost. The disparity in losses was one of the most... Um, through the one side of the war, and certainly in the Southwest Pacific area. But but the deception gets to the point where General Kenny essentially said, guys, I, I don't want you to fly west of this line. And, and because of that, I think it, it uh, helped to convince the Japanese of what they already believed that the Landing beach would be, and and guys, I mean, um, how does does this really work as well as we think it did?
0: Oh, it works beautifully. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, ahead, it absolutely. Gates the Japanese air. It allows Mitcher's carriers to operate there for you know the timetable they're going to be operating. They they are under no duress from any land based air. Um, the landings go off, you know, more or less as planned. I mean, it really. Uh, at, at the Hollandia landings, the, the problem isn't necessarily the Japanese opposition, it's the terrain. Yeah. The terrain, the beaches are awful, especially on the Tanamara yeah. side. And, uh, you know, so that's really the issue. Now, of course, subsequent, once the beachhead is there, it's a target for any stray Japanese aircraft that can get through. Now, that's another matter. But in terms of, uh, of you know, molesting the fleet or whatever, no. Another, another deception point is um, bombardment. So you, you know how famously during the run up to the Normandy invasion we we send two bombing missions at Calais for one in Normandy and all that. Well, this is really similar mm-hmm. because we're still we're sending um, bombing raids to Hansa Bay to that area there too to the, the near where the two Japanese divisions are, but also the bombardment, uh, naval bombardment too. You're going to have uh, PT boats that are going to zip along the coast at night. Uh, as if preparing for some sort of special ops or landing Alamo scouts uh, who are like special recon people. Um, You know, so there's all this kind of bait and switch that really does completely fool uh, General Adachi and the the Japanese, that they really have no idea the Hollandia uh, operations are happening. And also, too, um, when the fleet does move, once the troops are aboard, um, and and it's moving west. There's going to be the, the fleet is going to be zigzagging. Even then, to try and keep the Japanese guessing as to where they're actually going to disgorge those troops.
0: Once once they do disgorge the troops, John, to to your point, it's it's there is hardly any Japanese resist, resistance on all the beaches. You know, Hansa Bay, not Hansa, uh, Humboldt Bay, Tanamara Bay, and A Tape. I mean, these guys pretty much walk ashore but it's once they get ashore that the terrain just eats them alive because the as good as the intel had been to prepare the macarthur's forces for this by you know cutting off the people at ansa bay and going to hollandia and a-tape and all this the the aerial reconnaissance the terrain intelligence was completely non-existent shall we say it was it the the terrain a mere 30 yards behind the beach in some locations wasn't anything like a road they they aerial reconnaissance has said that there was a road that would connect the two landing areas and <laughs> in fact it was a swamp it, it wasn't a road at all there were no roads it was nothing but a friggin swamp and as we've talked about swamps in new guinea before These are some nasty swamps. I mean, this isn't anything you can really trudge through with any kind of rapidity. This is some serious stuff. And it just brings what was a absolutely perfect landing to a snail's pace because they can't get the hell off the beach. And when the beach is only, you know, 30 yards deep ish, all these supplies that are just pouring ashore, they got nowhere to go. So they just wind up stacking them and they, they, they on the beach and they become these mountains of supplies, which, as you said just a second ago, do eventually become very, very ripe targets for Japanese aerial opposition. Now, now what is true that we eliminated a tremendous number of Japanese airplanes in the area, we didn't kill all of them. And as a matter of fact, this stockpiling of, of american supplies on the beach comes back to bite us in the butt here uh when a japanese air raid does indeed hit the area and when it hits the area it doesn't blow up just a couple of crates of stuff it tears up everything in this one area for a day or two there's a fire going on there this is some serious stuff and this causes a major supply issue with the people that are ashore and pushing inland can you tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah. So, you know, even before that, um, once the troops have gotten ashore, you're talking about very long, strung out columns of soldiers uh, walking on whatever trails they can find or cutting trails. Um, and through those swamps, you know, we've got a guy who drowns on the first day in a swamp. We've got another situation where a guy is getting bogged down in a swamp and, uh, you know, has to soldier. He, he's he holds his rifle out or with his uh uh, for a sergeant to try and help him out and the, and the weapon you know, discharges and kills the sergeant, you know um, You basically landed in a Japanese rear area uh, And so whoever's there has sort of taken to the jungle or has been shot and destroyed or captured here and there um, And so now your orders are to unload reinforcements and supplies, but there's hardly any room like you said Seth, uh, so it's a 30-yard beach that gives way to thick jungle or to swamp. Mm-hmm. Where do you unload it? What do you do? How do you how do you get vehicles moving? And so there's a tendency for this to be bottlenecking. Now, to be sure, the 41st and the and the 24th, their their vanguards are moving pretty well along the, the sort of narrow, muddy trails that are, you know, that they'll eventually link up without too much of a problem and you know from Japanese resistance. But back at the beach. Here's our issue. I mean, because there's all that stuff stacking up, all the logistical sinews, and a lone Japanese aircraft comes through, I think, a couple of nights after the invasion, um, gets lucky by dropping a bomb and an ammo dump, which creates sympathetic deton- detonations, a chain reaction. Of course, you can imagine how much combustible material there is. Uh, there's trucks that, uh, that burn and whose tires burn straight down to the hubcaps. Um, there, there's metal that's, uh, that's actually melted and burned uh, because the fire becomes so intense. You can imagine all the ammo, ammo's cooking off. Um, you know, it's like a 4th of July thing. And so you, here are, um, you know, we, we, we talk about the infantry a lot, the, the so-called trigger pullers. Well, I'll tell you what, um, in this case, it's the quartermasters and, and mm-hmm. people. Um, You know, who are doing a lot of the most courageous work here to try and pull ammo crates away, uh, to try and build fire breaks as all this is going on. You have uh, specially fitted LCI's that are are coming in as uh, like firefighters to try and hose down this. uh, The flames, by the accounts of those who were there, rise at least 500 feet in the air in some places. Uh, You can imagine the smoke. Um, and so, you know, you have, I think, 24 men killed, about over 100 some odd wounded and and some who are burned. Um, it's about two days or so before this is uh, brought under any semblance of control. And it just kind of makes me wonder, my gosh, you know, what, what could have happened? if the Japanese really had uh, larger fleets of planes that there could be coming in regularly, we were really fortunate that they didn't. Th- this amounted really to more of a, a headache than a hole in the head in, in terms of the logistics that, that Eichelberger is going to have to deal with once these two divisions are fully ashore. but he will then redirect, um, elements of the 24th division to come ashore at Humboldt because that was really a better area to land than Tanamara as things turned out. Um, you know, the other thing I should mention, too, Horace Fuller, the commander of the 41st Division, had, uh, you know, wanted to, to land on, on every available inch of beach. And, and initially, um, the the, amphib- the naval amphibious commanders had said, no, we don't think our, our craft can get in on, on this one segment of the beach here. Uh, but F- Fuller had kind of gone to the brink on this and said, no, I need that. And I think in retrospect, it was good that he did, because you can imagine how the funneling would have been even worse on a, on a kind of half, half of Humboldt Beach or whatever. As it was, it was really bad though.
0: Yeah. I mean, supplies had to be hand carried to the forward units. And by hand carried, I mean literally hand carried. I mean they were humped from the beach up forward to the forward elements that were that were connecting back there in the back in the jungle by Lake Santani. I mean this this was a serious, serious supply issue, kind of almost reminiscent of Guadalcanal, frankly, in that, you know the guys that really needed the supplies the most couldn't get them because of multiple issues, not the least of which was the fire. You talked about the massive conflagration on the beach, but also just the fact that they're the Intel that had played such a valuable part in getting these people. There was so, so wrong on on the terrain side of everything that these guys were literally strung out with not much of anything. They were put on half rations for a while. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the infantry as always is usually the guys that suffer the worst. And that's exactly what happens here. And, you know, going back to what we were saying before the japanese uh defensive measures around there were virtually non-existent but they do run into some defenses they do run into some opposition as they're pushing further inland nothing that's really going to stymie the invasion however that being said uh, in one instance i believe it's the yeah it's the 21st infantry regiment under under lieutenant colonel thomas clifford Um, these guys run into a small band of japanese that Had this band of Japanese been larger, it could have delayed them for days or weeks even because of the terrain. But again, we're getting back to the terrain issue. These guys couldn't get around these people because of the swampy terrain, because of the lakes and everything else. And it was just a bottleneck in that area back there that eventually, uh, you know, the the infantry does move forward. They have to call in a lot of heavy artillery to wipe the Japanese out or cut them off. Mm -hmm. And... and the situation does wrap itself up eventually, but the supply issue for both of these operators, really technically all three, A-tape was a little bit better, but but Hollandia and and you know Humboldt Bay and Tanamara Bay, that was just a supply issue, was more of an issue for the Americans than were the Japanese, which is probably the first time that you can actually say that. At Guadalcanal, it was both, but, but here it's really, it's mainly the supplies. John... Um, A-tape. A-tape is an issue that, uh, you know, that was a simultaneous landing. It happens at the exact same, or within, you know, a couple hours of the Hollandia operations. This is a very similar operation in that it, too, meets very, very little resistance on the beaches, and these guys push in rather quickly here as well, don't they?
2: They do, yeah. The 163rd Infantry, which is one of the three regiments of the 41st Division, Um, is sent in there as a regimental combat team which means that it has these kind of attachments to it in addition to the infantry so that that's artillery and engineers and so on and so forth Um, yeah they're going to have total surprise they're going to take and develop the the taji airfield which is why we're there um, basically as a fighter field for close air support but also you know and, and sort of refer back to the the uh the map that that bill was showing earlier i mean that's the whole eastern flank of the landings um we've we've sandwiched yeah exactly thank you bill it, It's uh so we basically sandwiched uh, adachi's people in between our enclave there at a tape and the in the airfield and then of course farther to the east the the sort of main body of the australians and and any other american forces that are coming from that direction so um, that's a very successful landing, and it's going to be followed on by elements of the 32nd Infantry Division, which, of course, had, had mm-hmm. won the victory at Buna uh, and had been so wrung out, um, so badly mauled, uh, that it took take the better part of about a year or so to reconstitute uh, what was an excellent division, the Red Arrow Division, uh, Wisconsin-Illinois um uh, Michigan National Guard. So um, th- what happens in the, in the wake of the Solete landing that's so successful, um, that's our eastern flank of the Hollandia landings, and obviously Adachi knows this, and he knows now he's kind of outflanked, um, mm-hmm. and he's going to react to that. So he decides he's going to try and move his people westward, which is a lot easier said than done, uh, and try and snuff out that American airfield and, and beachhead there. You know, and that, that becomes what's known as the, the, the Drinium or River Battle and all this kind of stuff, too. So what, I, what I'd say is there's sort of larger takeaway from that is even the most successful flanking maneuvers or movements in land warfare can be really problematic. Uh, and, and can lead to a pretty potent enemy response. Uh, the, the, the Germans find this out in a, a tank battle called Arras in, in France in 1940. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of instances of this on the Russian front. We see it in Normandy, by the way, too, the 2nd Armored Division fights a hellacious battle on July 28th and 29th after the breakthrough and all this. So um, this is the Pacific War example of that. The New Guinea is large enough and the, the Japanese presence there large enough that they can have a reaction even though they're really in trouble um, logistically. Yeah. So the whole idea of A-tape originally is to, to support those landings to the west, but as things develop, mm. it becomes that sort of eastern bulwark of the, of the whole American presence there in that part of the island.
0: Right. And that that whole that whole decision to take that area proves to be very fortuitous because, you know, the intelligence, American or allied intelligence, rather, is telling us that Adachi does have a lot of dudes over there in the WIWAC area and he is coming. Um, so the whole just to put it in perspective, the whole Hollandia A-Tape, the initial part of the operation wraps up by April the 26th. So, I mean, this is just a few days. I mean, it's wham, bam, in, out, and we're, we're there and we're hunkered down. And we've established our defensive perimeters that are going to theoretically hold back any kind of Japanese counter thrust. Now, because of the intel that we're receiving that Adachi Adachi is going to be coming down here with his people um the thirty second infantry that comes in afterwards that you just talked about, the veterans of Bunagona, they set up a defensive perimeter along several of the rivers that led towards Wewak. So we know these guys are coming, and there's a whole intricate back and forth with Kruger and some of the commanders in the area about you know where to put the defensive lines and uh, aggressive patrolling and all this other stuff that goes on back and forth here and it's 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 kind of a kind of a cluster there for a while. but you know, Again, this shows this episode particular. We've we've talked a lot about Intel and how it's good and how it's bad. And this is another perfect example of this. Is that you know while I said we have Intel that the Japanese are coming and that Adachi is bringing you know the better part of twenty thousand guys down to this area, John. Several of the people, and by people I mean commanding officers in the area that really should know this information, don't and that some of the the commanding officers in the area, when the Japanese eventually do strike, and they do, the guys that need to know that these people are coming have no friggin' clue that they're coming, and they're caught completely off guard. Yeah. It's almost
2: inexcusable, to be honest with you. What what I compare Mm -hmm. it to is um, the the Allies are like uh, weather forecasters who know that a big storm is coming. Um, But in terms of like... Actual on the ground intel of where you'd have to worry about that storm and your timetable and all that for the people who really need it. That info does not get down there. Uh, And really, that's on Willoughby. Uh, Brigadier General Charles Willoughby, who's MacArthur's intel guy, um, who really, when you think about all the advantages he's got at this point in the war, you you would really, I think, fairly expect more from him. Um, he, he will make the statement that never have have commanders been so better prepared intel-wise for a battle. That would have been absolute news to the, the soldiers who are right there at the Trinidad River who all of a sudden have this massive Japanese attack in their faces. I think it's July 10th, 11th, 1944. That ends up as this sort of running battle that goes on for the next six weeks or so. You also have the 112th Cavalry involved too. And in mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the better part of the 32nd Division, you're going to see a regiment from the 31st division come into play, the 124th, um, you know, in, in addition uh, to the 163rd. And, you know, it's just really, it's, it's incredibly messy uh, because the Japanese are in rotten shape. Just, just moving to the line of battle has been an enormous challenge for them. Uh, but there's plenty of fight left in these guys, too, almost out of desperation. The other thing that, that I think is important in this whole mix is, um, and, and this has to do with the landings, it's a very much a pattern in the Pacific war um, that we don't really have a good understanding of terrain where we're landing. We don't always know the Japanese presence there. In this case we did because we don't have a lot of on the ground Intel. Um, like the French resistance mm-hmm. is giving you a lot of really good Intel about German dispositions in Normandy. Say we don't coast watchers, not with, withstanding, we don't always have that in the Pacific war. Um, the Alamo scouts helped. But even then, you know you you mentioned Los Negros earlier as a, as a maybe an Intel failure and all. even then that could have gone sideways. So um, in this case, the reason I do take Willoughby to task is because everybody knows the Japanese are coming. And that being the case, I think it, it's really incumbent upon the higher headquarters to, ha- to to get to the people who really need it. That, that kind of real-time info to say, okay, this is when you can and should expect the attack, and probably this is where they're going to go, we think. Um,
0: Bill, we, we talked about, you know, we, w- when we can, we talk about Japanese commanders, and this guy, Adachi, is one of those unique Japanese Army commanders. Uh, you know, in the past, you know, whenever the Japanese launch any kind of counteroffensive or offensive You know, they ultimately say, we're going to wipe out the beachhead, we're going to kill every American in sight, we're going to do this, and the battle's going to be over, and we're going to win, and everything's going to be glorious, and hallelujah. Adachi is not like that. He's a realist. Like, this guy knows what's going on, or what's not going to go on, as the case may be. Tell us a little bit about his plans, what he wants to do, and, I mean, it. you know— He's a realist. As I said, he knows he's not going to wipe out this complete American presence here, but he also knows what he can do. Potentially. Tell us about him. What, what is what are his plans here?
1: Yeah, the old story to to um, con- worry about the things you can actually affect. And he was a realist. Um, but he did decide one of the things he could affect, affect was to die in battle. Uh, and that that would be a better fate for his men than starvation. And certain death and weathering on the vine. so unlike other Japanese commanders, Idachi was, you know, no fool, and did not think for one minute his force would dislodge the American presence in and around Hollandia. He knew the position was strong, and, and he was also somewhat aware that MacArthur planned to move on from the region so his idea was that by attacking he might be able to divert allied forces into the region to that region thereby weakening the allied offensive that was going on elsewhere again control what you have control of he was very shrewd so his army moved painfully slow through the jungle averaging just two to five miles a day at best disease malnutrition and allied air raids further weakened his forces but he was determined to make this assault. And, of course, Allied intel was aware that Idachi was moving his forces towards ITAP and, in response, built up American defenses in the area, adding several new units to the territory. However, despite the intel advice, Max, intel officer, the previously mentioned Charles Willoughby, believed that the Japanese were incapable of such an attack in this terrain due to the logistical status the challenges and other factors that the Americans were dealing with themselves. So, local American intel revealed that an attack was em- imminent and troops were placed on alert for weeks. When in- that attack did not occur, Seth, in that time period, the Americans were taken off alert. As I've said in previous episodes, being on alert actually lowers your readiness long term, and you eventually have to come off alert. And unfortunately, they did that at the worst possible moment, Seth.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, on the night of the July 10th and 11th, like John was saying, uh, some 10,000, that's 10,000 Japanese attacked in mass across the Jirnayuma the, the River. Uh, three Japanese regiments assaulted American lines in disorganized fashion, as was typically, typically the case of units moving through the jungle. Um, we've talked about this on Guadalcanal, you know. It, Hayataki's people, you know, just got lost. Kawaguchi's people essentially got lost in the jungle. This is no different here. Units are strung out. Uh, orders to commence the attack are given at different times because they can't get a hold of people. Communication on the Japanese side is virtually non existent. Um, but regardless of this, uh, three Japanese regiments do assault American lines between 2330 and 0500. So that'll tell you how long this attack lasts, at least the initial attack. Um, two rifle companies, E and G Company of the 128th Infantry Regiment, took the brunt of the Japanese assault, uh, supported by heavy artillery and machine guns, seemingly everywhere. Uh, the GIs inflicted heavy casualties on the Japanese. Adachi's lead elements were cut down in some units by as much as 90%. John, this is kind of a, you know, second verse, same as the first, or in this case, 10th verse, same as the first, that when Japanese units are assaulting American dug in positions, they just take a Pounding, an absolute pounding, be it from the army or the Marines, it does not matter. They just take a beating of biblical proportions. However, because of the fact that the Japanese are sending so many people into this one small area, they eventually do break through, and they they cause some havoc here, don't they?
2: No, they absolutely do. They rupture the line. Um, and it leads to a long confused running fight uh, that goes on not just that day for the subsequent days too. Um, back and forth uh, the capture and recapture of positions and whatnot uh, the, the, the casualties inflicted on these guys is staggering. Um, there's probably at least 2,000 casualties the first night alone um, and, and it lo- what it looks like to the Americans, um, there were so many Japanese bodies in in that main area they were attacking that uh, the, many Americans who were looking at it were wondering, what is that down there? Are those logs, you know, jamming up the river? Because some parts of the river were dry, some parts were wet. Um, it's just, it's really kind of horrifying uh, because I, I think Guadalcanal is a perfect uh, comparison in terms of the, the misery for the average Japanese soldier of trying to move forward to, to even attack at all um, to have any supplies at all most of these guys are, are have lost a lot of weight by the time they attack part of their desperation is fueled by the hope of capturing American supplies uh, American food right. um, similar to Guadalcanal you know in, in many instances so um, it yeah, I mean, it leads to a kind of, a for, for about, oh, oh, roughly about a two-week period of just this attack and counterattack pattern where there's all of these Japanese who just keep kind of popping up as they enter the the, the area, uh, you know, forcing breakthroughs here and there, getting killed mostly, I mean, whatever it is. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the, the latter stage of the Drinium War is this sort of, oh, well, let's do our aggressive patrolling and chase these guys down and, and kill them, and, and, you know, that... That, in some ways, is even more nightmarish for the Americans, because then you're talking about long, you know, columns and and, and jungle trails and not knowing where they are and where they're not, you know, ambushes and, and of course, the heat and uh, the the lack of food and the tough of supplying and all this kind of stuff that goes on. Um, Adachi, Bill put it right, he's absolutely a realist. He basically has two choices after Hollandia happens. Um, We can sit here, wither on the vine and die. Uh, Or we can find a way to attack and affect the situation somehow because he's very smart in that he knows MacArthur's great hope is to move on to the Philippines. And if he can intrude with that timetable, that's good for the Japanese cause. So from Kruger's standpoint... Now, once this happened, he's really juggling a lot of balls uh, because he's got this mess at the Drinium War going on. Uh, he's got to worry about defending the the A tape perimeter and the airfield there. A lot of good artillery assets there, by the way, that are in place that really do help. Mm-hmm. He's got to worry about developing the Hollandia base, which is really Eichelberger's preoccupation. Uh, you know, from late April onward, developing into into a base a base out of nothing almost. You know, mm-hmm. and then. And then under you know, MacArthur's pressure, continuing to move on west, because also too we we didn't mention this, but uh, on the whole western edge of the of this this western flank of this whole thing, there's the fight of the sixth division at, uh, at you know at Lone Tree Hill and the 158th Infantry, mm-hmm. the Bushmasters at Lone Tree Hill. Um, so it's a it's a very complex campaign in that sense. it, yes, it, it is. It couldn't be less glamorous. Um, it's uh, it's. In terms of the fighting, it's all Army. Uh, and another thing I want to mention, too, is in terms of the engineering development, it's, uh, it's Army engineers and aviation engineers that are, that are doing it. The, uh, the CBs are more famous, and, of course, rightfully so, I think. But, um, but the, 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 the Army engineers and the aviation engineers are doing much the same job. Uh, and so that's your challenge if you're one of these guys trying to create something out of this mess of a, of a wilderness here. Um, even as the combat soldiers are, are dealing with Adachi and, and all of this, from the Japanese standpoint, of course it's way worse. Um, these guys, of course, we, we talked about you know getting killed in the in the battle there, but more commonly, really, for the Japanese by this point, by mid to late 1944, um, you're probably wandering around in what they call the mm-hmm. Green Desert, the jungled wilderness, um, slowly. Starving, um, slowly dying from some tropical disease, probably succumbing to it, and then getting consumed by animals, by insects. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's horrifying. Cannibalism. Um, you know, one example I'd give you, and this is a guy who happened to survive. Um, his unit, when it goes into to New Guinea, had two thousand guys in it. Only sixty-seven mm-hmm. ever got out. You know, um, and he—he's one of the few survivors who could tell us what it was like. And he, he basically—it's—it's a, it's a case of delirium, of just wandering around and just constantly on the lookout for protein. So, like, you catch a lizard, you eat it even while it's alive. I mean, that—that's the kind of thing, the level of starvation going on. So, this is of course MacArthur's concept, though, to outflank and starve these guys logistically, and it's quite successful in the long run. Yeah,
0: it's—it's the, it's it's the story of the okay. Japanese.
1: My uncle's ahead, army don't. engineer in in Guadalcanal in the Philippines. So in my family, army engineers were more famous than Phili- than
0: CBs. But go ahead.
2: <laughs> <laughs> in your family, I, I, yeah. I wish every they were all like that. Yeah, yeah. Good point.
0: <laughs> well, and of course, here at Camp Shelby is is run by engineers. So <laughs> there's yeah. engineers everywhere out here. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, the the wandering and starving in the New Guinea jungle and just the jungles in the South Pacific period is. The Japanese MO, you know, it's what happens to them on every on damn near every island that has any kind of jungle territory especially New Guinea. But, I mean, you're talking about Gona You know, the si- similar thing happens. Guadalcanal, similar thing happens. Bougainville, similar thing happens. So, I mean, it's, it just goes on and on and on and on. And you mentioned, you know, the Japanese that are coming down to attack, uh, Adachi's people that are coming down to attack, you know, the 32nd and elements of the 112th and everything else around the journey. Umar there, it, they, they were suffering moving through the jungle. If there's anybody, if there was any American unit that knew about suffering moving through New Guinea, Jungles, it would most certainly be the 32nd Infantry Division. But you oh, yeah. to, to get back to just a little bit, yeah, really, just to get back a little bit about that, um, an American counterattack, you mentioned artillery, an American counterattack restores the line somewhat on July 13th, 14th. It closes the gap. And by the way, that gap in the American lines was some 2,000 yards wide. Um, Three field artillery battalions of 105s support this counterattack. So I mean there is a lot of artillery fire that the Americans can pour in here. And that's frankly, in my opinion, from looking at this, that is the tipping point. You know, I mean the infantry is, is great, but that that heavy artillery fire support, which the Japanese essentially did not have at all. Mm-hmm is really what tips the scales here because this is a touch and go battle and it's something that i guarantee most people watching this have never heard of this before unless they read your book they they never knew about this and and this is a nasty nasty fight that is one of those instances in the pacific where you know it was touch and go for a while and there's not not to say that the japanese were going to succeed in pushing us out of there it wasn't going to happen but that whole back and forth fight that goes on until the end of july is is one of these instances until you get really to parts of the Philippines that you really don't hear about too much. You know, normally it's a counterattack and a swift defeat or, you know, or or what have you. But this is a back and forth event that goes on and on and on and on on. Um, By the beginning of August, the Japanese offensive had essentially been killed off and petered out. Uh, What remained of Adachi's forces began a torturous withdrawal, like you were saying, John, back through the jungle to the Wiwak area. Um, During this period of fighting, and we're not going to get, I don't think we have the time to get into all the citations for these guys, but there were four uh, United States Army soldiers who were awarded the Medal of Honor all posthumously. Bill, who were these four guys? We we can't, unfortunately, get into too much detail on them, but who were these four guys?
1: We can't. Interestingly, there was two junior enlisted and two officers. Donald Lobach of of the 32nd ID was only 19 years old. Gerald Endel was 28 years old from Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. Uh, George Boyce was a second lieutenant. He was 29 in the 112th Cavalry. And Dale Christensen um, was also the 112th Cavalry. Uh, So, you know, these guys, he was a second lieutenant as well, all awarded posthumously. And if you read their citations, they're not going to surprise you. These guys were heroes, Mm -hmm. all of them. And, you know, as many medals of honor in this battle as, um, you know, Tarawa, interestingly, and Mm -hmm. and that one only lasting 75 hours or so, but uh, in this one, a lot longer. Yeah, go ahead. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and, and to your point, and what we were talking about earlier, John, uh, is that this fighting around the journey humor while while all the fighting that had occurred at a tape in uh, humboldt bay and tanamara bay and the areas around there had been relatively light in american casualties this fight here and japanese casualty too by that uh, by that measure this fight here along the journey humor is is significantly more costly in human lives uh, 440 americans were killed and a further 2550 were wounded Uh, Japanese casualties for this battle that lasts roughly, you know, three and a half, four weeks, are estimated to be between eight and 10,000 men. You know, a lot of these uh, include starvation and disease deaths as well. There are no concrete figures for the Japanese dead and probably never Mm -hmm. will be, frankly, because of those bodies that are still laying in the New Guinea jungle or what's left of them. Um, The four-week-long fighting spurt was actually the heaviest and costliest fight undertaken by the United States Army in the Pacific since Buna Gona. This is just this one river fight that goes back and forth and back and forth. Um, as American forces moved further towards the Philippines, many of the units involved were rotated out and were replaced with Australian units. We like to bring up our Aussie friends whenever we can, and this is certainly one of those instances in which a lot of these American infantry and cavalry units that we just mentioned are replaced by Australians who continue this long, bloody slog all the way to the end of the damn war. Um, they're going to fight these Japanese all the way until 1945 in this area.
2: Yep, Yeah, and I mean, it's the classic sort of bittersweet thing for the Australians. Um, it's, um, I mean, it's sweet in the sense that it's, it's victory. It's, you know, they have the initiative. They're, they're going to be constantly on the prowl after the Japanese. It's bitter in the sense of the losses they're taking. You know, so 1942 and 43, Australia is really taking the lead in the ground fighting for the allies. By 1944 and 45, obviously now they're starting to be put into these backwater areas to to, uh, whether it's Bougainville or whether this portion of New Guinea or whatever it's going to be to tie down the Japanese and, 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 you know, make sure they're not going to make any more trouble while the, the Americans are doing much of the heavy lifting as we go farther north. Um, so, Australia, I think, loses some influence on the Allied side as a result of that. But I think that the sweet part of it, too, is that you're not involved in as costly of battles as, as it once happened. Right. Um, but, I mean, that, I think that partnership is really a lot of times overlooked in, in our understanding of the Pacific War. The U.S.-Australian partnership, which is so vital. Um, and I think among the Western powers, there is no country that mobilizes a larger percentage of its population in the uniform than does Australia. In addition to serving as a, obviously a key base and everything else
0: they're doing throughout the whole war is just, I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely a vital, vital ally. Bill, uh, let's wrap this sucker up. Um, the, the landings at Hollandia and A contributed heavily towards the goal of silencing the Japanese in the New Guinea area. Uh, wrap this thing up, put a bow on this operation for us. It, it, even though it starts off kind of quiet and ends rather vicious, it is a very, very vital campaign, though, isn't it?
1: Yeah, the, if I were to put a bumper sticker on this one, Seth, it would be a heartbreaking statement that half the number of fatalities occurred here, and occur, uh, American fatalities, occurred here than occurred at Tarawa, everybody's heard of Tarawa. Nobody's heard of Hollandia and A Tape. And I, you know, I know that's in, and maybe an exaggeration, but it's not much of one. And it should be front and center in everybody's consciousness of, of, of the tragic, great, great tragic battles in the Pacific War. And, um, some people, my army friends, would say, yeah, it's the reason nobody's heard of it is because there weren't any Marines here. You know, that, that's all that exaggeration, right? Um, um, Marine squads have a PAO per squad. I mean, I'm, I'm teasing, but it is a very important point. And I think one that John undoubtedly wants to make is that the Absolutely. Army battles throughout the Pacific, and I think part of this is backlash against MacArthur, have much mm. lower, you know, whatever it is, ascendancy visibility than most of the marine battles in the Pacific. And that's
2: too bad. No question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and the other thing this does, which is so meaningful long-term, is it accelerates MacArthur's timetable to the Philippines, uh, which, of course, is going to be the nexus of the of the American war from, from now to the end. And uh, without Hollandia and A-tape and all that, I'm not sure that that you're going to have the Philippines. I mean, who knows? It's all Mm -hmm. one of those imponderables. But there's no question that it accelerates it and makes it possible as MacArthur would have envisioned, you know, what happens later in 1944.
0: Yeah. The the whole goal of capturing this area, you know, obviously was to cut off the Japanese at WEWAC, which it does. And then two was to get this Hollandia anchorage and develop it into a large Base for further supplying operations that goes west. And that's exactly what happens here. Uh, you know, they turn this thing into uh, a naval base, Hollandia, and it does, to what you were saying earlier, John, through the engineers, Navy CBs, all these guys, convert this area into this huge supply and staging area that does, you know, have a direct result on the philippine operation that's going to come just a few months later so Hollandia is one of those areas that, like what bill was saying you know last time we had you on john we were talking about the marshall islands and we you know we talked about Majuro and places like nini we talking and Kwajalein, and you know things that helped springboard us to the marianas this is no different when it helps springboard us to the Philippines because this is a staging area. This is a supply area that directly influences the landings that are going to happen in October of 1944. Um, guys, is there anything else we want to say before we wrap this up? And, John, I know you got a role. you got things you got to do, and uh, <laughs> we appreciate you being here with us again. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Love talking it over with you guys. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always, always good to have you here, and we'll, we'll definitely have you on again as we move forward through some of these more United States Army battles as we get through the Pacific. Bill, is there anything you want to wrap up before I do the canned close?
1: I think we uh, said it all, and thanks again, John.
0: Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Yep. So with that, we want to thank you very much for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Um, If you want to see the video version of this, if you're already not watching it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel called The Unauthorized History of the Pacific War Podcast. Send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. With any questions or comments, we will get back to you as soon as we can. Once again, my name is Seth Perrin, and I want to thank you very much for listening and or watching. John, thank you again for being with us. Bill. And I'm Bill Toadie. See you again next week.